Hello, I'm Linda Gasparella, the co-host of White House Chronicle and also the program's producer. You haven't seen me for a while, but the truth is I never left you. And today I've come back with a really great show. We're going to talk about the Great American Reset. It's an idea that Llewellyn brought up in a recent column for his syndicate, Inside Sources. And to join the discussion, I have a great friend from Washington, longtime journalist, a very distinguished one. His name is Bill Loveless, and he's the co-host of the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast. So let's get into the show with Llewellyn as a guest for once and not the host, <laughs> and with Bill joining me in the questioning of Llewellyn on this really interesting idea, the great American reset. So hello, Llewellyn. Welcome Dear to the Linda. show. <laughs> welcome you. to your show. And Bill, welcome to the show. You've been a guest before. Before we begin, why don't you tell me something about the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast? Well, thank you, Linda. Hello, Llewellyn. Uh, yeah, yes, the Columbia Energy Exchange is the uh, uh, podcast uh, that's uh, produced weekly by the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. And I have the privilege of co-hosting it along with Jason Bordoff, who is the uh, director of the uh, founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy. So it's a lot of fun. It's a new medium and um, uh, get to uh, talk to some interesting people, much as you do here on this program. Certainly do. All right, well, and let's get down to, uh, to business here. The Great American Reset. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we're living, Linda, in a seminal time. And that means, of course, seminal means a time after which nothing will be the same as it was. We are going to see changes that we can hardly imagine. They've begun, they're underway. Uh, they have been accelerated, but not initiated by the COVID-19. What has initiated them, in my view, is a surge of technological innovation. It is coming at us with huge speed. You and I and Bill see it in the digitization of our daily lives. If you, uh, whether you're talking to your doctor, you tend to do it more on the internet. Uh, very soon, uh, you can go through life with hardly ever speaking to a service person. This is a very <laughs> strange thing to happen in the service economy. But if you take an airplane nowadays, you check in online, you get your boarding pass online, or rather you get it on your cell phone, more digitization, uh, except for somebody actually seeing that you are who you should be. You're on the plane and sitting in your seat, no human being. If you want to talk to your bank or to any other institution that you have business with, chances are you get into a great automated telephone system and getting a human being is very unlikely. Or you, mean the great, you mean the great rat hole that you get That's into. That's right. Uh, but on the, on the upside, things are moving. We're digitizing everything. Everything is changing. Just think of one thing that isn't changing. I'll list two, because they're both things I'm interested in. Energy, the electric utility is changing very quickly. It's digitizing. It's changing the way the fuels mix to get off uh, get off carbon so we're seeing more windmills more solar panels and in due time we may see other innovative alternative ways of making electricity when you look at transportation that is in a 
big change. They are working on electric aeroplanes. They have in, in several parts of Europe, electric trainers already. They're, uh, they're uh, twin-seated aircraft that uh, they have very short duration, but they're using them for training, electric, working with batteries. The airlines are looking at how they can electrify. Uh, ships are being electrified. The Navy is looking at electrification of its ships. And on the surface, the way you and I move around, suddenly we're not necessarily on the surface. We may go in one of these electrified things, but we may also look up and see a drone, which is another form of transportation that has been electrified and changed and is going to change the way we live. Now, this is going to require a lot of uh, uh, additional technology. I mean, you don't want your pizza, which is flying in, bumping into your laundry, which is flying in. So you're going to have to have a lot of uh, air traffic control, but that's not all. Suddenly, we're seeing very rapid underground transportation, courtesy of Elon Musk. There is now completed an underground, one of his boring systems, a small tunnel designed and built with a very fast machine going through the ground much faster than ever before. Uh, they're looking at it in Miami. There's a test track in Los Angeles. These are huge changes. And when Elon Musk is behind a change, it tends to happen. He's basically given us electric cars, which we'll all be driving in 15 years. Uh, he's given us a new way of getting into space more cheaply. And now he's going to give us a way of going under the earth. These are extraordinary times. And while I'm at it, if I might take another minute, we are manufacturing things in a way that we have never manufactured them before. We're printing them, 3D printing, also more conventionally known as additive manufacturing, uh, in which instead of taking a block, say, of metal or wood and carving it and losing all of that surplus material, you build it up instead more efficient, less material waste, and again, electricity and digitization. It works off a computer design. You design what you want, and it can be almost anything. Body parts are being printed. Uh, a house has been printed. These are seminal changes. Things are not going to be go back if we all get back to work in offices, which we may not. And I may be one of the last people you see in a jacket and tie because that is under threat too. Uh, Bill is like me, he's of another generation. I see. <laughs> Bill, I'm going to ask you to comment on that. On the jacket, I, I was a little nervous coming on the program <laughs> without a jacket. I saw Llewellyn had one on, but uh, it took me a while to find a necktie. So this is the, this is the best I could do. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, it is uh, the column was it did strike me, Llewellyn, because I think we often think uh, in terms of what's right in front of us, right? Uh, we see changes occurring, but we don't necessarily re recognize the uh, implications of them or how uh, how much impact they may be having on our lives. But we've learned something in this uh, awful period of, of the pandemic, and and uh, we've seen how our lives have changed, and. Um, to some extent for the better. I mean, we're seeing other ways of living, the digitization of our world. The fact of the way we're doing this program right now, we wouldn't have necessarily thought about doing a year or so ago. Um, uh, the, the extent to which uh, we work from home now and whether we will go back to an office someday. 
we see the children in our neighborhoods uh, simply learning differently. It's not easy, but it's possible. And um, it, again, it's technology that has offered us this, uh, maybe opened our eyes to what is going on. I, I was walking my dog through the neighborhood the other day and I came across a, a new house with the usual sign posted in the front saying it had so many baths and so many bedrooms and had this and that. And the bottom line said, it's wired for telework and teleschool. <laughs> I'd never right. seen anything like that before, but it's a sign of the times that we're in right now. Um, I hope that more people will take a longer view of, of, of what's happening today. Um, I'm in Washington. Um, uh, you know, I follow closely what's happening with government policy and all, and the discussion is infrastructure. And, and uh, you know, infrastructure has always been what underlies everything we do in this society. But again, it's, it's what kind of infrastructure are we talking about? Yes, it's roads and bridges and tunnels and this sort of thing. But it's uh, other things that you mentioned in this, uh, this, this fine column of yours, uh, a digital world. Will, will we invest in this sort of uh, technology? The Biden administration would suggest that we are, but I think it's a question that remains. Llewellyn, so much of, of what you've talked about in your column depends on electricity, and it depends on the reliability of electricity. How sure are you that that reliable electric future is out there for everyone? I think the term of art that they like is resilience. And it's questionable. Uh, we just saw a terrible blackout with enormous uh, consequences in Texas uh, because of a miscalculation on the weather. Uh, traditionally, electric utilities have been in a position where they didn't try to anticipate everything. They tried to, res they tried to respond quickly. And their responses are amazing. They get trucks across the country with crews in next to no time. They respond terribly well to outages. They're very good at response. But if everything is going to be electric dependent, response is not enough. It has to be on 24 seven without hesitation which probably means we'll need more storage and the big challenge today in the electric world and Bill knows as much about this as I do, so I'm keen to hear his view, but is going to be uh, how we're going to store electricity. It's never been well worked out. We've never had a very good storage system. And even today, we rely on in storage on batteries, which basically are exhausted after four hours. Uh, or some very old technologies like pump storage where you pump water up a mountain and then it comes down from the turbine when you need it. Uh, storage is the name of the game in electricity so you can have it close to the place of usage and outages uh, become a thing of the past. Bill, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree on storage. We've, we've, it's sort of the holy grail, right, of, of, a, of, a, of a reliable uh, and modern uh, grid system. Um, and, um, you know, we still, as you know, haven't reached the time when the storage is there to provide not only a couple of hours of backup, but, uh, you know, many hours of backup, what they call utility scale storage, where in effect the, the, the storage uh, uh, capability becomes like a small power plant. 
Um, but you know, I'm confident too that that technology will accelerate and, and uh, continue to, to get better. We're seeing uh, in some states uh, regulation that's requiring minimum amounts of uh, storage installation going forward. And I think that will make a big difference. I think the bigger concern to me when I think about the reliability of the US grid is the nature of the grid in the United States. We don't have a national grid. We have a grid that is structured differently in different parts of the country. And it doesn't necessarily deliver electricity from one place to another. And that's the problem right now as we see the potential to uh, build that much more green energy, wind and solar around the country. You know, Some of the best wind potential is in the plain states. Uh, where uh, the, the uh, demand isn't so great. And so it'd be nice to be able to uh, deliver uh, that power uh, to the uh, big cities and other places that um, uh, where demand is far greater. That's hard to do in this country. It's very hard to build any uh, major energy projects, be it pipelines or transmission lines or just about anything else. And, um, uh, you know, until we can somehow reconcile that, I think, um, you know, we're going to fall short in terms of what's, what's possible with the grid. In Texas, they would have benefited from being able to br bring in more power from other parts of the state. It's a different story in Texas. I mean, they had their own grid and there's a certain history there and all that. But nevertheless, it did speak to the, the importance of being able to deliver electricity freely around the country. And this country is just not wired right now to do that. The resilience of the grid from not only physical disasters like weather, but also from cyber attack. The cyber criminality is getting more sophisticated and state players are getting very good at it. We do not know whether the, the problems that the Iranians are having with their nuclear is a cyber attack or a physical attack, not at this time of this broadcast, but uh, the belief is that it would probably have been a cyber attack. Uh, and because there's been one before, one we conducted in, I think, 2010, Stuxnet, um, the, the, the protection of the grid is going to become quite expensive in terms of cybersecurity and maybe reinventing parts of the grid and the whole control system uh, that manages the grid. How do we insulate it? How do we make it less vulnerable, less connected to the rest of the world. Interestingly enough, uh, your comments about closing the digital divide and improving education are really something that, uh, two things that are coming up in, in President Biden's $2.3 oh, $2 trillion American Jobs Plan. Um, closing the digital divide is, is certainly a big part of it. Um, Refurbishing schools, uh, making them better places for kids to learn is another part of it. These are, are, I think, important aspects of what he's rolling out with that American Jobs Plan. And I think that people shouldn't underestimate how important they are in order to, to become more competitive. And if you look at one side of the American Jobs Plan, what it's all about, um, he said in his own words, is about outperforming. China, we will never get to that point where we outperform China if we can't close that digital divide, if we can't improve the school system, and if we don't even take into consideration unleashing more women in the workplace, women who are caregivers. I know the plan's been criticizing, criticized for 
for putting caregiving in there. And women are the caregivers. But there you have it. They're the ones whose potential could be unleashed if they didn't have um, the sad burden of doing a lot of the caregiving. I just well, wonder, Llewellyn, if you think, I mean, you spoke in your column about the, uh, the New Deal and World War II and the, uh, the, the um, effects of, of those uh, events in history and how they changed the way we live and changed economies. And of course, uh, both involved uh, very, very heavy involvement by the government. Certainly, we saw that with the New Deal. We saw that with World War II. To what extent do you think this phenomenon we're seeing today, this great reset, this new era that you write about, is going to be influenced or driven forward by the government, or is it going to be largely the result of new technology? Well, new technology, but remember, most of the new technologies that are driving things forward were developed by the government. The internet, uh, uh, supercomputing, all were government-driven. Uh, people forget that the government is the major source of innovation in this country, and then it, when it's handed or taken by private industry, then you see it applied in huge skill. Uh, Elon Musk, who I mentioned earlier, because I think he's a great person to look at at this time, uh, would not have had a better rocket if NASA hadn't done a lot of work on rockets, but he came along and did a better rocket. Uh, almost <laughs> all aspects of the internet came out of the government. I remember once being at one of the national laboratories uh, in Sandia, uh, not Sandia, uh, Los Alamos, also in New Mexico. And there was a woman there, it was a very limited hotel at that time. And there was a woman there uh, at breakfast. So I started talking to a youngish woman and I said, what do you do? And she said, oh, I sell computers. I sell gray computers. These were the fastest, biggest computers then available. And I said, well, there must be a hard sell. She said, oh, no, uh, they will buy anything we make. But that is how you got the computer revolution. The government was driving it. I remember uh, uh, Edward Teller in 1955 in a declassified document I read said that he needed better computing machines, better computing machines. Well, he got them. The world got them. And it was government driven. So there's got to be a balance between the government and private enterprise, but it's never been a well, a comfortable balance. And maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe some dynamic tension between private enterprise and the government. Uh, the government is a great inventor, a terrible implementer. The government is very good as a pulling maxim. It's lousy pushing. So if you can keep the government doing what the government's good at, the rest of us, to make a buck, will be good at everything else. No worries there. You know, picking up on something uh, that Linda mentioned, and, and as well as you, Llewellyn, uh, Linda, you talked about diversity and the importance of in, in gender diversity. And, and um, you know, speaking more broadly, we're seeing a lot these days about environmental justice. One, one impression I've had lately, and I think this gets at the, the changes that take place substantially uh, in the years ahead, is uh, the extent to which the the sort of the downtrodden communities, whether it's it's racial, whether it's workers or uh, who are out of employment, these sorts of things are getting sufficient attention in Washington. And certainly after the year we've had in the past year with not only the pandemic but all kinds of racial concerns, 
I think this issue now is coming, really come to the forefront more so than I recall in the past. I was reading in the Washington Post today, a lengthy story on uh, efforts made decades ago by some, uh, some men, African-Americans to fight uh, pollution in their communities. And it wrote about how often the, 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 the dirty stuff, pipelines and power plants and chemical plants are in communities, uh, of minority communities. And, uh, and, and, I, and I read as well about, uh, a, you know, a, a plan by, uh, I think it was Senator Copper from Delaware to hold a, uh, a hearing in West Virginia to see what they could do to help uh, bring that state's economy away from coal and into something else that's profitable. I think this is a topic that's come up before in recent years, but I think because of all that we've gone through in the past year, it's getting much more attention, certainly by the Biden administration, whether or not it's the, the, the response is effective, only time will tell. Well, I think it is getting more attention. I'm not sure whether the attention will help. What will help is two things I mentioned. Better employment, better employment opportunities, and better education in order to uh, avail oneself, or the people who need that, of those better opportunities. I also think that a lot of that hinges on getting broadband out to the underserved communities. If you look at the president's report card on states, which just came out, it really is shocking at how many communities and how many states have no access to broadband. And I don't think that you can become what Al Gore called the 21st century worker if you don't have the tools. And broadband is definitely a tool. Well, I think, I think that's so. I think there's something the government as an infrastructure that they have to provide. That things the government, whether it's local or national, provides, and we don't question uh, fire service, basic education, right. uh, roads, etc. how they're paid for, complex taxes, but we look to the government to provide them. Right. Uh, when you get too little taxation, then you get governments trying to work around that with some very nasty results, relying too much on gambling, hitting often the poorest and the worst off people in the society. Right, gambling's so a tax on the poor. No, it is a tax on the poor. It's not a tax on the rich. People with millions of dollars don't go out and buy a ticket in the lottery. It's people Except with no it's party money. favors or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, sure. So th that's so, but in other ways, if you don't have uh, sufficient taxes, to build the roads, next thing you're doing some complex uh, highway for sale arrangement. Uh, Bill, can, can I talk to Bill about the taxes? There is a lot of grumbling right now in corporate America. We hear this grumbling all the time. You know, they're going to go from 20, 21% to 28%. They're actually just going to go back to where they were. But already the shrieks and wails can be heard, you know, from Boston out to San Francisco. Where this will mean that we won't be able to hire people. This means we won't be able to make the commitments that we need to make in, in building out our plant. But you know something? When you really think about it and you think about you know, the taxation, what happened during the last presidency? During the last presidency, what we had was money that, that the corporate uh, kingpins got. And what did they do with it? They used it to invest in shareholder equity, on making rich people richer and not investing actually in their workers or in their physical plant. 
So this crying about taxation is going to pay for the infrastructure that we need. Don't you think that's obscene? Well, I, you know, it, uh, it, it's a, it's a, yeah, I do. I mean, as, as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I, I think that people, uh, you know, view many of these corporations that have paid nothing in taxes as we've been reading lately and, and, uh, and then see, uh, you know, how they're buying back stock and doing these sorts of things and benefiting from the tax cuts. Um, you know, I, I, there have been some indications from some corporate leaders that they would be willing to pay uh, more in taxes, but you know, we, we'd see if they how much of uh, effort they would put behind that. Uh, what I find interesting is that uh, the, you know many of these companies, and now even some of the larger institutions like the Chamber of Commerce and the American Petroleum Institute and others, are saying, "Well, we should put a fee on carbon." Now we're talking in the narrow sense, not taxes broadly. But um, put a fee on carbon and, and uh, leave it to us, leave it to uh, technology to figure the best way of reducing emissions. And I think, you know, just about any economist you talk to would say that's the best way of going about it. But uh, unfortunately, in Washington, any discussion of tax increases is now taboo among, well, certainly among Republicans. And, 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 and it does, just doesn't go anywhere. Um, you know, how you pay for these things, I don't know. You can't even increase the gasoline tax. There, there will be opposition uh, to doing that. The it, Biden administration didn't even try to do that in this latest proposal. You know, uh, I think that, that the rigidity that comes with the no taxes ever, our society works terribly when it introduces rigidities. Uh, and this is a very unfortunate one. I'm hoping that when we get the reset, this great surge forward, this big change, uh, that a lot of these rigidities will be swept before it, will go away, and we'll have a new set of things to, to argue about. I'm a big believer in Overton's window. You remember Overton who said that only five things can be held in the public imagination at any time and they're in the window and then they move out. He was an economist. <laughs> I tend to agree with that. And I hope that uh, foolish views of government will be swept away just as those who think that the government can do everything. I don't think the government can provide jobs. I think the government can provide uh, an environment in which employment thrives because prosperity is at hand. And that will solve the problem. Uh, the same thing, for example, well, going back to uh, both you and I have written a great deal in our lives about energy. Uh, uh, Biden wants to uh, help the utilities put in charging stations for electric vehicles. I think that's absolutely unnecessary. I think very soon as electric vehicles proliferate, so will people making money out of charging stations. And there's no need for the government to do it and probably not terribly desirable for the electric utilities to do it. Yeah. Go ahead, Bill. Thinking of, uh, you know, we look back, Llewellyn, on long careers covering energy, and, and, and sometimes you would do a story or I would do a story, and I'd say, geez, I think I've written this story before. It all sounds so familiar. Have you ever written a story like this before or a column like this before? Not like this one, no. But I... Uh, I've written many stories which have a certain I've been there before. I'd like to thank Bill Loveless, co-host of the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast, for joining us. He's a friend of ours. I never say old friend, but he is an old thank friend you. of ours. And in the meantime, everybody remember, 
it ain't over till it's over, as Yogi Berra said. Put on your mask. Cheers. Thank you both. Bye. We are now available as a podcast. Search for White House Chronicle in Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite audio platform. And subscribe to never miss our weekly shows.